Well, I do want to say this morning, even though it's, it's already been said, it's not often that I get to do this on the special day for my girls, but seven years ago, a great treasure was born into the world, and uh, I marvel at my blessedness um, to have received such a special little girl as Avery Jo, and so thankful to celebrate her birthday today. If you see Avery and, and me slipping out the side a little bit faster than normal, we're, we're going to party a little bit after church, so we may not get to all of you. <laughs> um, I want to say something to you as we begin today, as we begin, it's the beginning of the end uh, of our series, our Vision Identity series. Uh, I appreciate so much how you guys have engaged with me since I've been here. Next month, basically, will have been a year uh, since we moved here, and um, it doesn't seem like that because COVID knocked so much out, and we haven't been together, and I still feel like I'm getting to know you guys, but uh, it's, it's been a while still since we've moved here, and as I've done a good bit of speaking here over the last year, you guys have been so receptive and open, and uh, I don't deserve that. And I just appreciate uh, you guys being willing to engage and, and think and pray and, and worship with me as we come to the Word. I hope you know that I, even though I do a good bit of speaking here, I don't assume I'm the guy with all the answers. Um, sometimes people, people think because I went to school for a really, really long time that that makes me some kind of genius or something. And uh, there's actually... Uh, there's some reverb here, isn't there? I'm, this isn't helping, is it? I'm, okay. Um, actually, that probably should be the reverse. <laughs> I could have gone to a lot less school if I'd been smarter. Um, so uh, I, I assure you that we're just brothers and sisters here, and uh, I'm a person on the journey with you. And I'm thankful to be journeying with you. Let's open in prayer. Lord, as we come to the end of this series, we've uh, begun some time back. We ask you to bring it together for us and uh, to meet us here, to be present among us, to let your word speak to us. Lord, I ask you to give us a vision of what life can be like in you. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, a um, number of years back, when I was in California and involved with a, a church out there, I was leading a study with a couple of the leaders of the church there, and we were talking about topics for the study. And one dear, sweet Christian man out there uh, just caught me off guard with the question he said that he would like for us to study. He said, I want to study, why am I not the godly man I so desperately want to be? Why am I not the godly man I so desperately want to be? I don't even remember what I answered back then or, or if I just said, yeah, let's study that. Um, but uh, I think I know what I would say now. 
I think I would gently say to that brother now, perhaps it's because you've never, you have never intended to be. Now, I don't mean that he didn't want to be. And I don't even mean that he didn't try to be. This man was a good man. But where he was finding repetitive failure in his life, perhaps it was because he had never intended it. Because intending something different than wanting and even trying. See, if I want to become, say, a great piano player, I can't just want that. I can't just sit down at the piano and start. I get the feeling some people are laughing at me right now. Yeah, the, the piano player back there is laughing. So see, what I would do, if I wanted to become a, a piano player, I would sign up with Becky uh, for classes. And I'd have to ignore all the naysayers, all the people who say, well, you don't have a good ear. You can't read music. I mean, I don't know why they made every note a so uh, on the piano music. That, that's confusing to me. But, but, you know, I'd have to ignore all that, and I'd have to set out to practice, to learn, to get a teacher, and, and to, to arrange my life so that eventually I could play the piano. And I can't right now, but I could, or I could uh, take up a course of life that would eventually yield results where I would be able to play, at least somewhat, uh, play the piano, Right? That's what intending does. I don't just sit at the piano and try or come back by it the next day and the next day and try. I have to take up a, a, a carefully thought out approach and arrange my life around it if I'm going to, to arrive at that destination. We've been talking for weeks now. Boy, that light found me, didn't it? <laughs> I thought I could escape, but they just tracked me down. Um, We've been talking for weeks and months now about a biblical vision of the church. And I want to say to you that we can't just want it. We can't even just try it. But we have to thoughtfully intend it. Which will be arranging a course of life around these central objectives. And it's very closely related to, to individual growth. I mean, actually, you can't have, you know, we talk about the church corporately. You can't have a corporate church without individuals. You can't have a transformed church without transformed individuals. On the other hand, it's a lot harder to get transformed individuals if you don't have a church that's being transformed. Those two things go together. And so we might ask the corporate question, why is the church, generally speaking across the world, why is the church not what Jesus said? It's a city set on a hill. So you can't miss the light. It just, it's, it's blazing. That's what the church is meant to be. Why is it not? Perhaps we've never intended it. Perhaps we haven't thought it's possible. We haven't meant and set out to pursue a course of life and action that will yield communities that are cities up on a hill that are obvious to everyone to be the light. Instead, what we've done a lot of times is we have embraced the status quo. We have baptized the status quo. And not only that, now it's made its way into our gospel that we preach. That is, say, we preach a gospel that says it's fine. It's like the center, center of our gospel says it's fine for everybody to be like they are. It's fine for the church to be a pitiful representation of what Jesus meant for it to be. Because the good news is, Jesus takes care of that. 
And let me say, I'm very thankful for the mercy and grace of Jesus that covers us and that forgives our mistakes, but we can't twist the gospel up because of that and act like that's what we're always meant to be. As if the only thing Jesus came to do was zap us out of here one day and leave us in our pitiful condition for our whole lives. He meant for his church to be his body, to be a reflection of his life. And we can intend that. And we can move into that. But, but see, here's what my friend and yours too says about this. Radical transformation is not what our folks are prepared for in going to church. It is not what is in their contract with the preacher or leadership. Thus you will find here and there congregations that spend months or years trying to develop a mission statement. Almost never, never to my knowledge, do they come out at the point Jesus left, us, left with us to be disciples. That's apprentices of Jesus in kingdom living who make disciples and form them in inner Christ-likeness in such a way that they easily and routinely do the things Jesus told us to do. Now, wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice to, to have a community filled with people who have been transformed into inner Christ-likeness and who easily and routinely do the things Jesus told us to do? Do you think that's even possible? Let me ask you this simple question. Be honest with yourself about it, okay? You don't have much to lose, but you have a lot to gain by being honest with yourself here. What did you sign up for when you signed up for church? Here or when you first started wherever it was? What was in your contract? Were you invited into it? I mean, a lot of times it wasn't our fault because those who taught us didn't invite us into the reality. Were you invited into the reality of Christ to make the life of Jesus yours on a daily basis? And if so, let me ask you another question. What practices are currently in place in your life to indicate that you have arranged your life around this most important concern. If we were to evaluate your life, what would we see there to say, yes, this is the central thing. I can know Christ today. I can live with Christ today and his life can become my life. Okay, what, how am I doing that? How am I learning that piano? I'm hoping it'll fall on me. I'm going to say a few prayers as I drive to work. Is that, is that what it is? And then at another stage, how are we arranging our church life so that we together are pursuing that kind of life? See, this is the mistake we have to correct. Sometimes people hear these kind of things and think, okay, I've got to go out on my own and I can do it. No, actually, let's hold hands together and go out and do this. How are we arranging church life? And see, this is why we've been talking about a vision of the church for, for these months. 
a vision of a church that includes pursuing Jesus. And these are just, uh, well, these are most of the things we've talked about. I may not get everything in there. We've talked about taking teaching and training seriously, teaching the Word. And that's what we're about to begin doing uh, more thoroughly next week, entering into the Gospel of Matthew. Teaching and training people, knowing and loving each other deeply. We're working on forming. We're going to be coming back to this. We're not just letting these things go because we've preached on them. Okay, we're going to be coming back to these things. Talking about how our, our, our small groups can be more transformational. Learning to care for the poor and vulnerable. And this is in no particular order here. It's not the order we preached on. Just bouncing around. Reaching out to those in society who are, are hurting. Uh, reaching out to the lost, both locally and globally. Getting engaged in global missions. Ministering as every member is gifted by the Spirit. We minister as a body of Christ. We pursue unity together, tearing down the walls because the gospel tears down the walls between races and ethnicities, tearing down interdenominational walls as well because those walls should not be there. We're working to be a unifying people uh, because that's, that's involved in our, our pursuit of Jesus, walking with Jesus. And then also worshiping deeply. Worship forms us. We come as people who are being formed, and we leave as people who are more formed. And it's always a, a discipline, a, a cycle of our life, being formed like this. We're not going to rehash all of these things today. These are just some of the things we've talked about that we hope to continue to pursue over time, that we'll be bringing up more and more over time because of the great honor we have to be walking with Christ in the world. Now today, I just want to look at the mission statement Jesus gave us as we summarize and and, and uh complete these series of talks. This is the famous Great Commission. Now, I'm starting at the very end of Matthew. Our study of Matthew actually starts next week, but uh, I thought I would just start at the end, the very end, so you know where this ends up, and then we'll go back to, to the beginning next week. So this is, this is the climax of the book of Matthew. We're going to see as we, as we journey through, selectively journey through the book of Matthew, that uh, mountains are kind of a big deal in Matthew. In fact, you have six mountains where Jesus says some important stuff, like the Mountain of Transfiguration, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, things like this, what we will see as we journey through the, the Gospel of Matthew, that things happen on these mountains. And here we come to the final mountain, the final climactic moment in the, in the Gospel of, of Matthew. And Jesus has been raised from the dead, and his disciples are going out to meet him. And uh, look at what it says. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Side note here, this is not my sermon, but I don't want to say this anyway. That word some is not really in the Greek text. Now, you could argue that it's implied, but I think it's a stretch. But all the translations want to put some in there. Because we can't deal with the fact that actually they worshipped and they doubted. And I want to tell you that just because you have doubts, it does not invalidate worship. Sometimes we think because people struggle, because they don't understand, because they're at a weak point in their faith, they can't worship. No, you can have doubts, and you can still worship. These people worshiped, these disciples worshiped, and they doubted. And we can start where we are. This is, this is important for us to understand. As we pursue discipleship, we start right where we are. You may not have it all together today. You may not have everything lined up and, and, and fixed in your mind, but start where you are. Come to Christ. In fact, you may find that as you worship with your doubts, that's how the doubts get dealt with. You may find that the reality of Christ that's present in worship actually overcomes the doubts that you're dealing with. And Jesus came and said to them, 
It's important that we don't rush past this to get to the other part. He said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Only what you don't see in your English translation is, is the Greek is arranged in such a way to make this an emphatic statement. So it's, it's, it's him saying, basically, to me. You know, the way we might could do it is just to kind of raise our voices when we say it. Say, All authority has been given to me. Now, you see, he's just been killed. It seemed like he'd been defeated. And he comes to his disciples there and says, listen, you may not quite get it all still, but you need to understand, all authority is mine now. Now, do you believe that? I don't mean do you believe Jesus said it, do you believe it's in the Gospel of Matthew? Do you believe that all authority has been given to Jesus? Not to our president, not to our Congress, not to Russia, wherever we might think of things powerful and authorities in our world. All authority has been given to Jesus Christ. Now what do we do with that? If he is really in charge of the world, we have to think about what he wants to do. So here's what he says. He doesn't just say it for a limited time offer for, for the first century, for the first 50 years for his disciples to live out. He says it for us still today. Here's what he says. Go make disciples. Now, now listen, he doesn't, uh, this might be confusing to you. He says, therefore, in light of all this authority that's been given to him, Go make disciples. There's only one main verb there. It's make disciples. And you have participles in the Greek that modify that verb. The main verb of this passage here is make disciples. That's the point. In light of all the authority that Jesus has received, what do we do? We go get some weapons together and try to conquer everybody? Maybe that's what they were expecting. No. Go and learn the customs and the languages and the cultures of the world and take them captive to the glory and goodness of Jesus Christ and spread it everywhere. March forward because Jesus has the authority to send us out. But understand that we're making disciples. And this terminology gets worn out today. I'm afraid we don't, we don't hear it like... Like they would have heard it in the first century. They would have known what a disciple is. It, it, like we read earlier, Dallas Willard's quote, it's an apprentice. It's someone who, who decides, I'm going to learn from him. This is what we're doing with people. We are teaching people to yoke themselves with Jesus and to learn life from Jesus. And it's really possible to do that. Not only is it possible, it is the mission that he has left with us. We can learn life from Jesus. He will guide that life. In light of the, res the resurrected authority that he has received, we can be and we can make people disciples. People whose life really reflects the life of Jesus. You see, we've got to get past the, the mentality, the status quo mentality that makes us think the main thing we're doing is making converts getting people to come to church. Some people stop coming to church and we say, oh, they've fallen away. In reality, they've fallen away long before that. And the truth is, a lot of us have known it. We've known the way they've talked to their family in their home. 
We've known the way they've, they've talked about people in the church, the way they've done business outside the church. We've known these things, but we thought, well, they're coming to church. And that's because we have not let Jesus tell us what the mission is. The mission is not to get people to come to church. I was asked years ago to go out and get somebody who had quit coming to church to come back to church. I did it successfully. <laughs> but I realized later that was something I'll never do again. I will go visit with people, but I will sit with them and ask them, do you want to follow Jesus? And have you, have you counted the cost of what that means? Are you ready to deal with your addictions? Are you ready to deal with the way you've been talking to your wife or to your children? I mean, these are just, these are kind of the negative side of things. The positive side is, are you ready for abundant life? <laughs> Do you want that? Then why don't you come back to church? And we'll, we'll get busy working on that. But the invitation that Jesus gives, he didn't say, go, make people, come to church. Go, in light of the authority that I have to rule over all the world, go make disciples. You see, we haven't just settled for converts sometimes. We've aimed for converts. Because we haven't even thought the goal was we can actually bring people into a life with Christ that's radically different and new and better. This is not a burden that's being given to us. This is a gift that's being given to us. Thank God that Jesus didn't finish up saying, go try to fill up the church and then I'll take you out of here sometime. Instead he said, go, you can make people People whose lives are full and rich because they know me and they're living with me. That's what he left us with. That's the gift he gave us. And so you see, when, when we, we take that as central to our mission, we're making disciples of all the nations, then there are two specific things we do that are uh, going to help us walk into that. We baptize people. I want to say to you that I don't think we ought to rush people into baptism. Now, I realize there's a longer conversation to be had here. And you, you can read the New Testament and the book of Acts, and it seems like sometimes they are rushing people into baptism. But uh, what the early church realized, it's especially as they started bringing more pagans into the church, they realized these people weren't prepared. You know, early, earlier they're baptizing Jews and, and God-fearing Gentiles who have a background. Prepared. They realized, whoa, we're bringing people in with no context here. And they started thinking, if we're really going to make them disciples... This is going to take a little bit more time. And I'm not saying there's a rule on it. You know, sometimes, some people have said, well, there was a three-year period of training in the early church. Uh, it could be more or less than that. And, and I'm not saying we need something like that. But I think we need something foundational in place that helps people understand their baptism is connected to a, a life reorientation. This is not just saying, okay, we got you in. Now you can come sit in the church with us. This is saying you are now being baptized into Christ. And life is going to be totally different now. And there's a way we need to take time and prepare people for that. There's a direct line from our baptism to our life with Christ. 
In 1 Corinthians 10, uh, Paul is, is using an illustration. He says that all the Israelites were baptized unto Moses when they crossed the Red Sea. Imagine that, crossing over. That's a huge transition, right? In baptism, we transition. We're crossing over into a life of discipleship. And we baptize people who want to be disciples to Jesus. And you understand what that means. Many times we baptize people today, they don't have any idea what Jesus taught. And they're not prepared to pursue that life with him. See, we baptize people into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's not a technical phrase we're supposed to master so it works. Right? Abracadabra, name of the Father, Son, no. This is the reality we are entering into. We're crossing the Red Sea into the reality where we live with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The triune God is real, and we are walking with him now. And you see, when you baptize people like that, it's completely natural then to teach them to do everything Jesus said to do. Everything he said to do. Because we've already realized how great he is. We've already signed up to say, yeah, I want that life. So teach me everything. Teach me everything he taught. And don't emphasize your church's pet doctrines. We have churches all over the place that are known for this doctrine or that doctrine that kind of distinguishes them from everybody else. And I'm not saying that those things are totally unimportant. We shouldn't study those things and do the best we can with them. But look at what discipleship meant. We're going to see this in the Gospel of Matthew as we begin next week. Look at what discipleship meant in the Gospel of Matthew. And see, were you trained in those things? Did you sign up for those? Jesus said, love your enemies and bless those that curse you. Give to everyone who asks of you. Put away anger and lust from your life. I mean, they were just getting started on the kind of things that Jesus taught. Did you sign up for life like that when you became a Christian? And have you realized the great gift that that life is? People who've signed up for discipleship, who've been baptized into the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit say, teach me. And recognize what, the great, what a great gift it is to be taught by Christ, to walk in that kind of way. Teach us to do everything that Jesus said to do. We want that because we know how good his life is, how good he is to us. What if we had churches that were known because we took the time to teach people how to turn the other cheek instead of retaliating against people who harm us, against people who insult us. You know, what if that's what we were recognized for? What if we were, were known as people who could really understand what Jesus meant when he told the story of the good Samaritan and said, you go and do like that Samaritan did to people? And not just that we taught it occasionally, but that we really lived it out. And this is the thing. We can't just give sermons on this and think, well, that, that solves everything. We have to let it be a texture of life. It has to infuse our small groups. It has to infuse our praying. It has to be something that we take steps to, to uh, make it practical. For example, this is just one example to, to put meat on this. 
talking about loving our enemies and being reconciled with people who have harmed us. Great, we can give sermons on that, and that will go so far. But what do we do if we're talking here and there, as churches will do, and we realize that we're talking to somebody who's been wounded by somebody else in the body? What do we do with that? See, what if we have a church that's permeated with people who say, hey, well, hold on. Jesus told us to do something about that. And you and I can't sit here and fuss about it. Because there's a pathway of reconciliation that's been taught to us by the master teacher. And we're going to live that out by his grace now. And more than that, we're coming to commune at the table where we are reconciled together this week. We need to do something about that before we come to this table together. You see, this is the kind of texture of life where the teachings of Jesus are not just spoken, but they are inhabited. We're living them out together. Here's the beautiful thing. Don't miss this, this last little bit of the passage because it's central. Jesus says, you teach people to do everything I've told you to do, and listen, I'm with you always. I'm always with you. Now, he was about to leave them, you see. His bodily presence was about to leave. They weren't going to see him right there. He wanted them to know that he was there. He's here too. When churches pursue the mission of Jesus to make disciples of all the nations, he is among us. And that's why we can risk. That's why we can say, let's go out and try it. This is this crazy confidence that we have to say to people, yes, I know you're messed up. I'm messed up too. But a life of discipleship is possible. And Jesus is with us when we do it. And he will see the project through. It's always been his project. It's never been ours. It's always been his. And he says, come on into this. The greatest opportunity that any of us can ever have is to learn to live life from Jesus. Do you realize that? Do you realize that that, that great blessing is offered to us? Don't pass it up. I was thinking this week, uh, my granddad, some of you knew him. We called him Big Daddy. Um, he was a, a terrible father and a terrible husband and a great-grandfather, and I loved him deeply. And uh, towards the end of his life, uh, well, it was you know, a little bit before the end, but he, he gave a sermon, uh, and he wasn't good at apologies, but uh, um, I took this sermon sort of to be his apology to his, his family. And, of course, Big Daddy, he was a unique personality. He would talk to you about his sermon in advance, uh, about how good it was going to be and all this, so you remember things about it. And uh, uh, this sermon was called Wasted Years. <laughs> and I was just thinking about this week, about that this week, knowing he stood up and basically he was saying, I wasted a lot of years. And I think about that as we come to a place right now. We're, we're doing what we can as a church to, to intend. We are, we are beginning to intend uh, to be disciples in a new way, in a radical way. Uh, don't waste the years that God has given you. 
this is an incredible opportunity to walk with Christ together. And we don't want to waste it. Don't waste this month. Don't waste 2021. But take up the, the mantle that has been given to us, passed down through the ages from Jesus to the apostles, to the early church, to the reformers, to us today, to walk with Christ. Take it up and realize this is the great, glorious opportunity. This is what everybody's heart is hungering for, even if they don't know it. This is the answer. There was a man who lived, and you may not have heard of him, but uh, he, was, he was British, and this is the last thing I'm going to say, and we'll close up, but uh, his name was Malcolm Muggeridge, and a relatively famous man. Incredible writer, probably should be ranked alongside C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton as one of these evangelical uh, heroes in terms of his, his skill with the pen. Uh, brilliant man, but he came to Christ very late in life. He lived a bad life, but he was a he was semi-famous journalist, like a Tom Brokaw in in uh, the UK, and uh, but but a greater writer who had a history in writing and a television personality. Actually, broke the story on Mother Teresa, and Mother Teresa was involved in his spiritual formation and awakening. He came to Christ late in life, and I want to read to you what he wrote um, about this, just to put it before you. Anybody who's hesitant to to step out with Christ. Listen, listen to what he says, and this kind of gets at the things that would distract us, the things that we think are alternatives to Christ. Please hear, please hear this. I may, I suppose, regard myself as a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough money to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the Internal Revenue Service. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of friendly diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heated for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet, I say to you, and I beg you to believe me. Now listen to what he says. Multiply these tiny triumphs by millions Add them all up together. And they are nothing, less than nothing. Indeed, a positive impediment measured against one drop of that living water Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who or what they are. You see, that is the offer that is offered to all of us today. Nothing compares to the offer of knowing Christ. I want to ask you today, as you commune, as you come to the table, would you ask yourself what you signed up for? And would you just uh, think about in your own heart if you're ready to sign up again? Whether you ever signed up for discipleship with Christ, whether you signed up and you've drifted from that, as you come to this table where Jesus gave his body and his blood and said, eat and drink and live, will you think about signing up again? And if you're going to do that, then I would really strongly encourage you to find at least one other person, maybe your small group, and tell them what you're doing. And then be prepared 
for the life that is truly life. It's a life of discipleship. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this great gift, this great invitation. Make it all real to us, please. For the people here who have tried and failed, restore hope and encouragement to their hearts this morning. For the people carrying great burdens that seem too great for this, let them know that nothing's too great for the God who has called them. And Lord, call us as a church into the true and living water of life, into a life of discipleship with the Lord Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.